God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and soon shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. For behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. A blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain, for God is his own interpreter and soon will make it plain. I know it's obvious, but that's a hymn. That's a hymn from 1774 by a man named William Cooper. And every single line in that hymn is about one thing, namely the mysterious providence and sovereignty of God over everything. And the reason why the sovereignty of God is mysterious or paradoxical is because on the surface, in the moment, it doesn't feel like God is sovereign. In the moment, it doesn't seem like God is in control. Or if he is in control, it doesn't seem like he cares very much. And yet the whole point of the hymn is that the opposite is actually the case. It looks like God is frowning, but in reality, he hides a smiling face. The gloomy clouds of our trials that we dread are big with mercy and soon shall break with blessings on our head, he says. The pain and trials of our lives always have a bitter taste. But sweet, he says, will be the flower. But you see, what he wants us to see and what he wants us to sing is that the sovereignty of God in life just doesn't necessarily look the way you think it should look. That mysterious though it is, that sin and evil in the world are never there by accident, but always by God's decree. That God ordains what even appear to be setbacks to his own plan, so that in the end, he gets all the glory when they are resolved. Can you handle that this morning? That's a mystery. That's a paradox. That's tough to reconcile with human logic, and yet that is a mystery from which the prophets never feared to speak. They were not afraid of the sovereignty of God, you understand. They never apologized 
or tried to rescue God from his sovereignty. They never tried to soften the blow. Rather, the prophets were always willing to say what so few people today are willing to say about the sovereignty of God. And what Isaiah says about that subject in chapter 10 is startling to say the least, but it is necessary, necessary for us to hear about the God that we worship. Because in this chapter, we come face to face with a reality that the same God who would send Assyria to crush his people is the same God who would crush Assyria for crushing his people. That he would eventually destroy Assyria for doing the very things he ordained them to do. Can you handle that this morning? That's Isaiah 10. The whole point of the chapter is that God does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. That he governs everything that comes to pass, including sin and evil and the shifting of entire civilizations. And much though that might make us squirm in our seats, neither God nor Isaiah apologize, but instead challenge us to bend our theology not what makes the most sense to human logic, but to what God says in the text. And what God says in the text is that God is sovereign. Every line in this chapter you understand is about the mysterious providence and sovereignty of God. It's about that the God we trust moves in a mysterious way. That deep and unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. That is Isaiah chapter 10, and it is incredible. And maybe it doesn't have the curb appeal of Psalm 23 or Romans 8 or other passages, chapters that are our favorite in the Bible. It is nevertheless essential for our sanity and stability and joy and our hope. Do you want to be sane and stable and joyful and hopeful? I know you do. And so what you need is the God of Isaiah chapter 10. Let's go to the text. This morning, I want you to see three ways. Three ways the providence of God cures our fears and cultivates our faith. Three ways the providence sovereignty of God cures our fears and cultivates our faith. We'll see those ways at the end. Let's walk through the poetic, prophetic message oracle beginning in verse 5. If you like outlines and direction, I have one. Let's start with the sovereign sending of Assyria. The sovereign sending of Assyria, verses 5 through 11. By now you well know the grim political drama lurking in the background, don't you? You remember that the people of Israel and Judah were in really serious trouble, and by that I mean Assyrian trouble. Assyria was in that day the heavyweight champion of the ancient Near East, and at this moment they were taking over absolutely everything. At this moment they were expanding their kingdom headed due west to Israel in the north, to Judah in the south, and neither country stood a chance. They knew it, and Assyria knew it. And yet both of those kingdoms, you understand, in that moment they had a choice. They could live by faith, or they could live by fear, but they couldn't do both. 
And so what did Yahweh do in chapter 7? But in his mercy, send Isaiah to the king of Judah with a message. And the message was, was Ahaz, despite what it seems on the surface, Yahweh is in control. And he is ready to intervene and deliver his people in a sovereign, supernatural way. And all the king of Judah had to do was ask. And you remember how the scene went down. The king of Judah threw it all away. And instead of trusting Yahweh to protect them, he would instead send a check to the king of Assyria to bribe him and pay him for his protection, which he would do until he decided not to. Chapter 7, verses 18 through 25. Chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. Make it abundantly clear that the king of Assyria was going to turn on them and very nearly wipe them out of existence. And 30 years later in 701 BC, that is exactly what happened. The question, the question for the people was, who controls Assyria? Who controls Assyria? What I mean is, are the armies of Assyria, these self-governing, all-powerful agents of destruction who have autonomous free will to do whatever they please? Is the extent of God's control over Assyria merely that he must allow them to do whatever it is they want to do, and then he simply has to make the best of it? Let's see what God has to say. Look at verses 5. And six. I know that first word in your Bible in verse five might be ah, but the word in Hebrew is woe. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in the hand of my indignation. I, God, will send Assyria against a godless nation. And against the people of my fury, I will command them to plunder the plunder and to seize the prey. And one way, to, one way to render that last phrase is to appoint them a trampling like mud in the courts. Do you see what God does in verse 5? Very, very clever. He begins with a woe. That's like the growl of a lion or the rattle of a cobra. It's ominous and deadly and reveals that the people in question, namely Assyria, are the object of the wrath and judgment of God. Woe to Assyria. There is no escape for them. And yet, at the exact same time, notice what Yahweh says about the very people who have a woe pronounced upon them. Verse 5, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in the hand of my indignation. What is God saying? God is angry with Assyria, clearly. There is a curse and a woe upon them, but at the exact same time, notice very carefully, they are the rod of his anger in his hand that he is going to use to punish his own people. They are the staff of his indignation that he will use to crush his apostate people. Look at verse 6. I will send them against a godless nation. And against the people of my fury, I will command them to plunder the plunder and to seize the prey and to appoint them a trampling like mud in the courts. You understand. Judah is the godless nation to whom God will send Assyria. 
Judah is the people of his fury that God would command Assyria to invade and plunder and crush and trample them like mud in the streets. God did that. Can you handle that? The dogs of Assyria would invade the land of Judah, and yet it was God who let them off the leash. See the paradox beginning to emerge? Woe to Assyria for doing the very thing that God commanded and sent them to do. And before we're done, we'll grapple with that and how to reconcile that theologically. But notice, notice in verse 7, God lets us in on a little secret about which the king of Assyria had no idea. The Hebrew is tricky, and it'll be different from the English just a little bit, but I believe it's a faithful way to render the grammar. Listen to what God says, verse 7. And he, that is the king of Assyria, does not thus imagine. And his heart does not thus consider that it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few, or to cut off many nations. Do you hear the secret? The secret that God just revealed about the king of Assyria's plans, did you hear it? The secret is... It was in the heart of the king of Assyria to conquer and destroy, but he never once considered why it was in his heart to do so. And the answer that God gives is, I did that. I put it there. I put it in his heart to conquer many nations and expand the kingdom of Assyria. The heart of the king of Assyria was like channels of water. In the hand of Yahweh, he turns it wherever he pleases. Proverbs 21, verse 1. Assyria would conquer cities and towns and realms and dominions, they would march through the Middle East pillaging and plundering, crushing opposing nations like insects on the pavement, all the while having no idea that God was the secret of their success. Or to be more precise, the sovereignty of God was the secret of their success. And that is, by the way, the very power that is working always working behind the scenes of every single geopolitical movement in history, including the very ones transpiring in the world at this very moment. You think Putin or Xi Jinping or your boss has autonomous free will to do what they please and God simply has to make the best of it? You think the best explanation for how things work in the world is that God simply must allow them to happen? No, no. No, you must go further than that. You must be willing to see the invisible hand of God over everything, ruling and reigning, guiding and governing, causing and controlling, and bringing every single moment to the outcome that he himself determined. The question is, do you see the sovereign hand of God over everything? Do you believe that nothing happens in the world except what God himself ordains? 
Because I'll have you know that is the cure for faith. Cure for fear, rather. And the foundation of our faith. And I don't know if Isaiah or God are trying to be funny in verses 8 through 11, but they're a little bit like comedy relief. Yahweh has already revealed that he is the one who inclined the heart of Assyria to conquer and wage war against many nations. He did that. Clearly, he is the power behind him to grant him the victory, to allow him to be the superpower ruling the stage of the world. And the joke is, Assyria has no idea. No idea. They think, they actually think that they are the ones with power and control, which is what makes their bragging so pathetic and hilarious. Look at verses 8 and 9. For he says, that is the king of Assyria says this, Yahweh recorded this secret private conversation for us to hear and to mock. He says, are not my princes like kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? And Hamath like Arpad, and Samaria like Damascus. <laughs> you look at this, like, what? I, I wouldn't even make, make sense out of that. What is he doing there? Well, what he's doing is bragging, is what he's doing. With no fall, small feeling of superiority, in verse 8, he brags about the princes of Assyria, that they were so great and so superior that they could be the kings of other countries. That's how awesome we are. Then in verse 9, the king of Assyria touts the glories of his own victories. He names the nations that his armies have obliterated. Notice how he does it. Is not like Kauno, like Carchemish? Is not Hamath, like Arpad? Is not Samaria, like Damascus? And our response is, I don't know. Is it? We have no idea what he's doing. You know what he's doing? He's naming some of the cities that he's conquered. And yet you notice it comes in three sets of two. And he compares the second with the first. What is he doing? What's interesting is the second city named in each of those pairs is way bigger than the first city. And what he's saying is those large, massive, giant cities were just as easy to plunder and destroy as the teeny, tiny, little towns, which was a way to say Assyria is invincible. Or so they thought. It's a joke. It's like an episode of Mr. Bean. It's like everyone's in on the joke except the king of Assyria. They had zero idea that all of their victories and all their conquests were only made possible by the God of Israel. And the righteous mockery continues, verses 10 and 11. Look at the text. Re reveals Assyria's theology, still quoting the king of Assyria. As my hand found the kingdoms of idols, and their images are greater than that of Jerusalem and Samaria... Shall I not do to Jerusalem and to her images as I have done to Samaria and to her gods? That seems kind of tangled, but what that is is a clue into ancient Near East theology, which is poor to say the least. And the point is, is that the number of gods you had increases your chances for victory and for conquest. And yes, there were unfortunately, idolatry going on in Jerusalem and in Samaria, but as a whole, Assyria and other nations looked at those countries as weirdos because they had one supreme God, and they declared only one God as a whole, and it was Yahweh, and he didn't even have an image representing them. And so the point is, here is Assyria licking their chops, expecting to annihilate Israel and Judah on the basis of the fact that they worship only one God. And yet his theology would cost him. Which means on the flip side, good theology, good theology pays handsomely well, doesn't it? And makes us rich 
wealthy tycoons of security and joy. Why? Because what you believe shapes how you live. And if you believe, really believe that God is matchless and supreme and governs the world with infinite sovereign power, you will not be shaken by the trials and fear that afflict you. Which brings us next to the providential punishment of Assyria. The providential punishment of Assyria, verses 12 through 19. And here is the paradox. The paradox of providence, the mystery of sovereignty. Here we deep dive into the beautiful enigma that God could send Assyria to crush his own people and then turn right around and crush Assyria for crushing his own people. Which didn't bother Isaiah at all. And why would it? The sovereignty of God is not a problem to be solved, but a perfection of God to worship. Behold the paradox in verse 12. Assyria would invade the kingdom of Judah, no question that was going to happen. And yet notice very, very carefully in verse 12 how Isaiah describes what Assyria would do to his own people. Look at the text. He says, and it will be when the Lord completes his work at the mountain of Zion in, in Jerusalem, he says, this is God speaking now, I will avenge the fruit of the lips of the king of Assyria and the pride of the haughtiness of his eyes. That's a staggering statement. You see the paradox? How did Isaiah describe what Assyria was going to do to his people? How did he describe it? What, what name did he give what Assyria was going to do to the people of Judah? He called it the Lord's work. That was the Lord's work. That's what the text says. When the Lord completes his work of using Assyria to crush his people. This was, God did that. Yes, yes, the battalions of Assyria were harsh and brutal and violent and savage, but at the end of the day, totally unbeknownst to them, they were the chosen instrument of God himself. Can you handle that? And you understand the same is true of every single difficult situation and scenario that makes its way into your life also. Every inconvenience, every surprise, Every wrong, every pain, every injustice committed against you is the work of the Lord. That is the Lord's work. He is at work in your lives. He, he's not doing the sin or the evil. He doesn't delight in the pain that you feel, but he is the one who brought the evil and the pain all with the loving design, design of refining your faith and helping you rely on the grace of his son. The question is, what is the Assyria in your life? Or to put it more biblically, what is the chosen instrument of God in your life right now to refine your faith and make you rely on the grace of his son? Because I know in the moment, it feels like God has abandoned you, but nothing could be further from the truth. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace, for behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling 
and yet marvel at the mystery. In the very same verse, what did Isaiah say that Yahweh would do to Assyria after he finished his work of using Assyria? In the same verse, what did God say he would do to Assyria? Answer, punish them. Bring vengeance upon them for their wicked crimes. The very wicked crimes, by the way, that he in some staggering mystery ordained them to do. Look at verse 12 again. When the Lord completes his work on Jerusalem through Assyria, he says, I will avenge the fruit, the arrogant fruit of the heart of the king of Assyria and the pride of the haughtiness of his eyes. What is the point? The point is, in the same verse, God states that he would devastate Assyria for doing the very things that he decreed them to do. Which means what we have in the same verse is divine sovereignty and human responsibility. They're perfectly compatible. God ordaining Assyria to murder his people changes nothing about Assyria's guilt for murdering his people. Changes nothing. That's the mystery. That God is sovereign in a way that changes nothing about people's personal accountability. How can this be? Is there a way to untangle the yarn? Is there a logical explanation for this? Well, it is biblically logical, and by that I mean theological. And maybe it wouldn't satisfy the philosophical demands of Plato or Socrates. But with all of its mind exploding mystery, it should and must satisfy us. Why? Because that is what the text says. And yet, did you notice? Did you notice there in that last verse the, the bone that... God had to pick with Assyria, the specific reason that Isaiah provides for why the wrath of God was upon Assyria, what does the text say? What was the bone that God had to pick with Assyria? What do you see? It was pride, wasn't it? Arrogance and pride. And the thing about pride is it's not just a little braggy or boasty or smug or self-righteous. No, you understand pride is cosmic treason against the Creator. Pride is an attack on the very glory and supremacy of God himself. This is a really, really big deal. And so quoting the king of Assyria again, listen to the delusional nonsense that came out of his mouth, verses 13 and 14. For he says, the king of Assyria says, by the strength of my hand, I have done this. And by my wisdom, I have understood I removed the boundaries of the peoples and their treasures I plundered. I brought the inhabitants down like a warrior. My hand found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And like the gathering of abandoned eggs, I have gathered all of the earth. And there was not the chirping of a beak or the fluttering of a wing. It's like taking candy from a baby. Or eggs from an abandoned nest. So Assyria dominated the Middle East. It was easy. It was easy to do. So here's the king of Assyria. Admiring himself in the mirror. Flexing his muscles. Kiss, kissing his reflection. 
praising himself for all the victories gained by the empire, having no idea that all of it had been predetermined by Yahweh. This will not do. Pride is a sin. Arrogance is an abomination. This is, this is the essence of insanity. This is the heights of absurdity, kind of like if an axe took credit for the chopping down of trees instead of the lumberjack. Look at verse 15. This is God speaking. Shall the axe exalt itself over the one who wields it? Shall the saw magnify itself over the one who uses it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. I mean, we all know the tales of Paul Bunyan, American folklore, legend, and all of his accomplishments. And yet how crazy would it be if all of a sudden the axe could speak and take credit for all of Paul Bunyan's achievements? How crazy would it be if Michelangelo's paintbrush could all of a sudden speak and take credit for the Sistine Chapel. How crazy would it be if the Louisville slugger could all of a sudden speak and take credit for hitting all those home runs and not Hank Aaron? You see, that's what this is. Notice I didn't say Barry Bonds, steroids. <laughs> you see, God is the lumberjack. Nations, trees are the nations, Assyria is but the saw and the axe. The club does not lift the man, the man lifts the club. You see, over and above the violent, bloodthirsty, sadistic, murderous acts of Assyria, they were still guilty of a greater sin, namely the narcissistic pride and worship of the self. And for that, they would be held accountable. Which just goes to show, doesn't it, how much God hates this stuff? Pride, I mean. Man-centered, humanistic confidence in one's power and abilities. Delusional self-help, believe-in-yourself, motivational nonsense slogans that people tell themselves. Weird, neurotic, psychopathic narcissism that exults in our own greatness as if a sovereign, all-governing God does not actually exist. We do that, and God hates that. Which means the meditation, wait, which means the, I tipped my hand here, which means the medication for our pride is meditation. Medication is meditation. In other words, the cure for all arrogance and pride is nothing less than your intense, rigorous, daily contemplation of the majesty and supremacy of God from the pages of Scripture. That is how we be humble. The higher up into the supremacy of God you climb, the lower you will sink into the sweetness of humility. You must, if you want to be humble, put your eye to the telescope of the text and behold the galaxy of God's perfections from the pages of Scripture. There is not another way to be humble. And yet, like a California forest fire in the middle of the summer, for their God-belittling pride, Yahweh would burn the kingdom of Assyria to the ground. Look at verses 16 through 19, and notice the repeated theme of burning and fire. Therefore, therefore, the Lord Yahweh of hosts will send on their stout warriors emaciation. 
And instead of their glory, he will burn them with the conflagration of fire. And he, or the the light of Israel, that's God, he will become a fire. And his holy one will become a flame. And it will burn and consume the thorns and briars in one day. And the glory of their forest and of their vineyard, he, that is God, will destroy from soul until body, and it will be like the wasting away of a dying man, and the remainder of the trees of the forest will be so small in number, it says, that a small little child will count them. I said it before, and you can see it. Trees. Isaiah's got a thing for trees. He's a theological arborist. Again, And again and again, Isaiah uses trees as analogies for people, and in particular, arrogant, prideful people who need to be chopped to the ground by a sovereign lumberjack, which is exactly what Isaiah predicts. Notice verse 16, therefore, he says, because of the pride of Assyria, Yahweh would begin to unravel Assyria's kingdom, first with plague and disease. You see that there? That could be a reference to chapter 37, when God would kill 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. Could be that. But then, verses 17 and 18, you see it. There's fire and flames and burning and inferno and absolute destruction upon the kingdom of Assyria. This is describing his sovereign judgment of them in history. And he would chop and burn down so many Assyrian trees that verse 19 says that a little toddler could count them exactly what happens. He would send Assyria to crush his people and then turn right around and crush Assyria for crushing his own people. Can you handle that? Isaiah doesn't apologize for it. Neither does God, and why would they? Why would they? The sovereignty of God is not some embarrassing theological deformity to hide from public view. It is a perfection of God to put on public display. Why? Because it is the cure of our deepest fears, and it is the cultivation of our faith. Could you sleep at night if God were not sovereign? I'm serious. Could you sleep at night if God were not sovereign? Could you accept your trials with joy if they were not from the sovereign mercy of God? Could you feel any security at all this morning if the extent of God's sovereign control was merely allowing evil to run its course and then just having to make the best of it? Make no mistake this morning. There is one being in the universe who has autonomous free will to do whatever he pleases, and it is not us. All the scheming, dreaming, plotting invasions of the nations come ultimately from God's decree. To be sure, Assyria, China, Russia, Iran, they are look like monsters, but from God's perspective, they are mere rodents chasing the cheese in the sovereign trap of Yahweh of hosts. Which brings us next to the remarkable return of the remnant. The remarkable return of the remnant, verses 20 through 27. Certainly, certainly the question 
Pinballing around in the minds of Israel and Judah was, what about us? What about us? What is to become of us as a nation, as a people? We're in shambles. We're in sin. This is not looking good for us. Certainly, Yahweh would destroy Assyria, and he would, he would annihilate them from being a threat against us. Yes, that's true, and we're grateful for that, but that still doesn't answer the question as to what our future is. The question is, had Yahweh reneged on his plan? Had he revoked his promises? Had he abolished the covenants that he had made with his people? The question is, what was the future for the people of Israel and Judah? And that is exactly what's answered in verses 20 through 27. And as it turns out, all of the covenant promises that God ever made with the people of Abraham were still fully intact. Look at verses 20 through 23. And it will be in that day, there it is again, that little code for prophecy. It will be in that day that the remnant of Israel and those who are escaped of the house of Jacob will again rely on the one who struck them. I know your Bible says they will not rely on the one who struck them, but I don't know why they did that. It's that they will rely once again on Yahweh who struck them. And it goes on to say they will rely on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant, the remnant of Jacob will return to mighty God. Although your people Israel are like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will return. A destruction is, de a point that is determined, overflowing with righteousness. For there is appointed a destruction by the Lord Yahweh of hosts who is doing this in all of the earth. And I know what that looks like. I know it doesn't look it at first, but these four verses you understand are crucial for even understanding God's plan for history. They are. Because you know God chose Abraham, did he not? And he chose Abraham to be a great nation called Israel, that a nation would come from his line, and they would be at the center of his sovereign plan for history, right? God chose Israel to have a place of prominence in the world, to be a channel of blessing to the ends of the earth. In other words, God chose Israel not as ends in themselves, but to be a kingdom of priests, a light to the nations, his servant to the world. The problem is, the problem is they got in bed with idols. Or as Ezekiel so eloquently put it, they played the whore with false gods. And what that that's a real problem because that eventually split the kingdom. They drifted from God. They would eventually lose most of the land that God had given. They would be taken as slaves into Babylon and scattered in all the earth, thus leaving most of God's promises unfulfilled and hanging in the balance, which is where things stand at this very moment, by the way. But the question is, what would become of Israel and the promises? What rabbit would God pull out of his hat to bring to fulfillment every kingdom promise he made to the people of Israel and Judah? Would they be redeemed? Would they be restored? Would they be reinstated to the land? And the answer is yes, yes, and yes. Look at verse 20. 
and it will be in that day. The remnant of Israel will rely again on the one who struck them. And they will rely on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Do you see it? A remnant of captives will return back to the land and they will put their trust in Yahweh. They will again finally, finally hope in the Holy One of Israel. And you say, this has already happened. This is what happened when they came back from Babylon. And I say, no, it's not. This can't be that. This can't be that. This has still not happened yet. Because yes, although they came back from Babylon, beat up and extremely humiliated, they were still gripped by sin and lukewarm, superficial faith, Ezra and Nehemiah, case and point. And oh, by the way, eventually they crucified their own Messiah. So no, this is not that. This is something different. This is a revival of the Jews where they, on a national scale, repent and believe in their Messiah. And maybe we're thinking, Messiah, there was no Messiah in that text. Oh, yes, there was. Look at verse 21. And they will rely on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Here it is. A remnant, the remnant of Jacob will return. Here it is. To mighty God. Does any of that sound familiar? A remnant will return. She'ar Yashub in the Hebrew. Where have we heard that before? Chapter 7, verse 3, didn't we? It was the name of Isaiah's own son. His son's name was a prophecy of this future event. Meaning, although Israel would be and is in fact scattered all over the planet in sin, rebellion, and unbelief, one day a remnant will return. To what? Or maybe the better question is, to who? What did the text say? The remnant will return El El Gibor, to mighty God. Where have we heard that before? I'll have you know that title for God is used only one other time in the book of Isaiah. In fact, it's used only one other time in the entirety of the Old Testament, chapter 9, verse 6, where it was a title of the Messiah. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, this is a reference to the Messiah. This is a picture of, of, of Israel's return and repentance and embracing of their Messiah. This is incredible. This is a picture of the people of Israel's future repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, where there will be one day widespread conversion and revival of Israel on a national scale. And finally, they will embrace their Messiah a vast majority of whom to this very day reject with hostility and indifference. But it will not always be so. Paul said this in Romans 11. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in, and then all Israel will be saved. As it is written, a deliverer will come from Zion and banish ungodliness from Jacob. Where, what is Paul talking about? Where did he get his theology? 
passages like Isaiah 10, 20 through 27. That's where. You're going to have to make room in your theology for something more nuanced than believe in Jesus, get to heaven. Which is true, of course. But you need to understand this whole thing that you're involved in called Christianity is a drama with a plot. All of history is the salvation saga of a sovereign savior who will single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. If someone asks you, what is the Bible about? You tell them the Bible is a salvation saga of a sovereign savior who will single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. And if you don't want so many words that start with S, then pick another sentence. But you understand that that includes the nation of Israel. Let me rephrase that. Israel is at the center of that plan. The church too, but also Israel. And the reason why that matters, if you're like, what does that even matter to me? The reason why it matters is because your hope is inseparably intertwined with theirs. The hope extended to the people of Judah in this text is foundational to your own hope in Christ because God keeping his promises to them is foundational, is the guarantee that he will keep his promises to you. And so the question is, is this practical? Is this helpful to our lives? Does this have any applicational value to our lives whatsoever? Apparently, apparently because look at verse 24. Therefore, Therefore, because your future is secure and the promises are sure and the covenants are guaranteed, therefore, look what it says, do not fear. Don't fear my people from Assyria or anyone else for that matter. They will strike you with the rod and they will lift their staff over you the way Egypt did, but in a very little while my indignation will be spent and my anger will be directed towards their destruction. Do you see it? I'm angry with Assyria. I'm angry with you. And when I'm done using them on you, I will direct my anger towards them. And Yahweh of hosts will arouse against them a whip like the crushing of Midian at the rock of Horeb and he will lift his staff over the sea the way Egypt did. And I know there's a lot of moving parts there, but the application is clear, isn't it? Do not fear. Don't fear. Assyria or anybody else. Isaiah goes on to describe what Yahweh would do to Assyria. Exploding the paradox, showing us the mystery of sovereignty. How Assyria would very nearly crush the people of Israel out of existence and Yahweh would turn again and crush them for crushing his own people. In verse 27, he would deliver them. He would remove the yoke and the burden of Assyria from their shoulders. And for a while, for a while, a little bit of time, they could breathe and enjoy Yahweh's deliverance. But this is very practical, you understand. Listen carefully, we're almost done. It's very practical for us because the promises of God are guaranteed by his providence. The, sov the promises of God are written 
in the ink of his sovereignty. And that right there is the cure of our fear and the cultivation of our faith. You see, what impales the heart of fear are the promises of God in the pages of Scripture. And you need to read them and read them and read them again and again and again until you can recite them from memory and you need to repeat them and hang on to them in real time throughout your day until they become a bulletproof Kevlar vest against fear and doubt and discouragement and despair. And maybe you're saying, what promises? What promises am I to know from memory, to hang on to in the moment? Well, promises like God works all things for good, like that. Promises like the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Promises like momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Promises like after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace will perfect and establish you. Promises like do not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we don't grow weary. Are you weary this morning? Weary, fearful, anxious, terrified, crushed, perplexed, discouraged, despairing? The counsel is stop listening to your own thoughts and breathe the sigh of relief of the sovereignty of God and all that he has planned for those who love him. In a flash, finally, the divine deliverance from a future invasion. The divine deliverance from a future invasion, verses 28 through 34. I'm only going to say one thing about this. I like maps. You like maps? Maps are cool. Isaiah gave us a map in verses 28 through 34. Actually, what he really did was give us a travel itinerary of an army, of an army in verses 28 through 34. And here's what's interesting. I have so many things to tell you about this. Uh, what this is is an invasion of an army that hasn't even happened yet. You see, many people think, well, maybe this is Assyria, but that doesn't work because we actually have ancient travel logs of the Assyrian army, and this is not the path they took. You notice in verses 28 through 32, he names these cities. It begins in Ith, and it ends in Jerusalem. Ith is in the north. Jerusalem is in the south. Every city in between functions in a zigzag motion, going back and forth. And you can tell that these are cities, and they are not happy visits to these cities because every city that is visited by this army runs and flees in terror. It has all the trappings of a military invasion. That's what this is. No one can agree on who the army is, which I think means it's not historical. It is eschatological. This is a future invasion that hasn't even happened yet, and even more than that, it's a future destruction, portrayal of God's destruction of that very same army. Here's what I'm saying. Here's what this text is doing. This is a cryptic, apocalyptic preview of the world's attempt to wipe Israel off the planet. And the reason why I think there is great evidence for that case is because the very next chapter, just a few verses away, is a prophetic foretaste and picture of the Messiah's kingdom. This is the battle that ensues just before he arrives and establish his kingdom. Which should cause us to marvel. 
to marvel at the Bible. The majesty of the Bible, which is clearly not this thrown together heap of miscellaneous tales. The Bible is a drama, a cosmic drama of redemption with a plot unfolding in the world, a drama which reveals with stunning clarity how the world is going to end and how it is going to begin again. And you understand that cures our fear and cultivates our faith. Finally, three ways the providence of God does that very thing. It's very fast. Number one, providence provides perspective. Providence provides perspective. What I mean is God's sovereign providence helps us make sense out of trials and pain and suffering and even the existence of sin and evil in the world, doesn't it? And the reason those things exist is because God is working a plan where he will be more glorified in the end than if those things had never even existed. And the more he is glorified, the more you will be satisfied. Number two, providence produces perseverance. Providence produces perseverance. Providence helps us persevere through trials and pain because through that lens we see that trials and pain are nothing less than a divine design from the hand of the Lord designed to secure our highest joy in Him forever. In other words, trials and pain wean us off lesser pleasures and fix our hopes on endless ones. Number three, providence provokes praise. Providence provokes praise. Praise of the God who would not be worthy of worship if he weren't sovereign over all. But he is. And so he is. I close with this. You understand, there are no accidents in the world. There's no such thing as random. Karma and coincidence do not exist. Those are not real. There's no such thing as luck or chance. All there is is providence that governs every single thing that comes to pass. If there is anything that cures our fears and cultivates our faith, it is that. It is the meticulous providence of God over every moment and detail of our lives, which is baffling to be sure. But it is also beautiful, isn't it? Yes, it is paradoxical but it is also profound. Yes, it is mysterious. There's no question about that, but it is also gloriously, eternally, and soul-satisfyingly magnificent. Let's praise and pray to the God of providence. Oh Lord, we confess we would not have picked this text for encouragement. And, and maybe, Lord, we're still, our heads are spinning with how exactly it is encouraging, and, and yet, Lord, the signs in the text are clear. You rule all things. And you don't expect us to explain that with perfect precision. You don't expect us, we, we see, Lord, to, to get that, just be able to figure it out perfectly, but you do expect us to trust you. And, and we, we need help doing that. We're not good at trust. We're not good at dependence. 
We're good at trying to be self-sufficient. We're good at self-reliance. And that explains so much of the pain in our lives. And so, Lord, we ask you that you would help us to up the ante of dependence upon your grace. That you would help us to increase in our desperation upon you. That you would help us to experience that moment by moment, second by second, desperation and dependence upon you for all that you provide, to do all that you command. Oh, Lord, help us to be a richly indwelt people by your word so that we think not our own thoughts, which are oftentimes not great, but we think your thoughts, that your thoughts would be our thoughts, that we would see the world as you see the world, and that we would experience all the joy as a result. We thank you for this time in your majestic, living, sharper-than-two-edged sword word this morning.